chapter 4. We're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. And if you've been with us this semester, you know that we've been in a series called The New Creation, or New Creation Life, I think. So I've got it up there. Yep, New Creation Life. That cool little butterfly on the... Anyway, all right. It's really Paul's series from Ephesians 4 and 5. And we're calling it New Creation Life because in these chapters, Paul's focusing on what life should look like in the new creation. Even though it's not fully realized yet, we're new creatures in Christ. So Paul's focusing on what, what life as a new creature in Christ should look like, even pre-glorified. All right? We could say it like this. Paul's describing how we should live as the resurrected people of God in chapter 2. God has mercifully outfitted us with a new nature, and we should live in a way that's consistent with what God has done in us and for us. So that's really the theme of the back half of the book of Ephesians. And this new creation life is, is rooted in the local church. That's where you're going to see it on display. Okay? It's rooted in the local church. And last week we learned that Christ intends every single one of us to be vitally connected, to be vitally growing, vitally serving in this body here. So that's the theme of this passage in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And Paul says a lot in these verses. The argument's pretty complicated. There's a lot of supporting phrases and not a lot of periods in Greek. It's just this one long flowing sentence. So it's, it's kind of hard to carve up if you're, you kind of, it's easy to get lost in the details, in other words. But what we're doing, since the grammar is really dense, my goal is just to summarize his argument just in three, in three statements. So if you, want a, if you want a theme for this message, what we talked about this last week, it, we're, we're calling it gifted for growth. That's really the theme. Christ intends us to, to he gives us gifts in order that we, that we use them and grow the body. And I'm summarizing his argument really in three statements. So the first statement that we looked at last week was, number one, Christ himself has given each one of us grace for ministry. Christ has given each one of us grace for ministry. Sorry, we got to... Loud and clear. All right, who... Somebody want this? Anybody? Yes, perfect. Okay. You now have the, uh, the goal of protecting us. You feel that? Feel the weight of that? Good. <laughs> okay, sorry. We have walkie-talkies. This is a side note. All right, so people can be cued in what's going on. We have a security. I don't know if that's what it's called, but I think it's a security team. They keep us safe. Very nice. So that's one way they communicate with us uh, is through those walkie-talkies. So now you can all come back to our lesson. All right? So first statement in this passage, Paul told us that Christ has given every single one of us, all of us, every believer, a gift or grace gifts that he desires us to use for the growth of the church. We covered this last week, so we're just going to summarize it here. 
If we put it simply, Paul says that we've been gifted for growth. And what's amazing about this gifting is that it, it actually comes as a fulfillment of the Old Testament predictions and prophecies. We saw that last week, Psalm 68. That's what Paul says. Just as Yahweh ascended Jerusalem and the people donated gifts so that the temple would be built, um, just as that happened, now it's happening again in a greater way. This was part of a pattern that would happen again in the future. Now Christ has ascended into heaven. He's dispensed gifts to us in order to build up his end-time temple, the church. And that's what we looked at in depth last week. If you missed it, it's on the, on the website. But the major takeaway of last week, the thing that we walked away from, is the fact that each one of you, every single one of us, as the part of the body, are indispensable to the health and the growth of the body. Okay, Each one of you are indispensable to the health and the growth of the body. It's not just a pastor thing. It's a body thing. It's a church thing. It's an every member thing. We could, say it, we could say it like this. If any of us are inactive, uninvolved, that uninvolvement is detrimental to the body. Uninvolvement is detrimental to the body. The church won't be as healthy as it could be if you are inactive. You're a body part that's not functioning for whatever reason. So, you know, an eye or an ear, if your eye or an ear wasn't working, that would be a problem, Right? If it was inactive, we wouldn't treat that casually in our own physical bodies. We used the illustration last week of a broken femur. You know, it's just like if we're inactive, we're like a broken femur. You can't just ignore that. That's going to be problematic in, um, in the church. We wouldn't treat that casually in our own physical bodies, and so we should not treat it casually in the church either. Our inactivity is actually problematic. It's a problem that we must address. And Christ saved us to be vitally involved in the life of the church. That's... If you understand, okay, he saved you to involve you, that's super helpful. But there's a reality that we often bump up against in this whole thing. And I've felt it. I continue to feel it as a young pastor. But in particular, as younger believers, we're often immature. Okay? We just kind of need to admit that up front. We lack wisdom. We're often overcome by sin. We vacillate in our commitments to one another, to the church, to other things. We have a strong propensity toward self-absorption. And all those things are very real obstacles toward being useful in the body, like Christ intends. They're obstacles. Or, many of you may be unsure of where you fit in the church, just because of, because of lack of experience. You may not know how you've, you've been gifted or, or how you can best serve others or how you can actually make a difference in this local body. You just, may just be unsure of those things. Well, the beauty of this passage, how it continues to unfold, is the way that God's designed the church, he's made a provision for that. A sweet provision. As Paul continues his argument in this passage, we're going to see that God has given specific people to the church to help each of the members grow up to become useful. So he anticipated this in his infinite wisdom, and he's outfitted the church in a way with particular people that are going to help this body be equipped. So we could say it like this. Christ, number two, Christ has given us leaders 
who help us grow in ministry and maturity. So Christ has given us leaders to help us grow. So if we're weak or we're an inactive body part, we're not sure how it's going to, you know, how we should function. These leaders are specifically given by Christ in order to help you grow both in ministry and maturity. Okay? And those things go together, both in service and in just growing up into Christ. So he's given us leaders to help us grow in ministry and maturity. Let's just read this passage in, in whole, and then we'll, we'll dive into the, the component parts. Verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. In other words, Christ has given us leaders to help us grow in ministry and maturity. That's, that's really what Paul's saying here. So let's break this component, let's break this big chunk of text down. Just through asking some questions, all right? Number one, who is he given? Or we could say it like this, what's God's provision? Who, has, who particularly is he given and what's their, what's their role or what are their functions? Who are they? Now, what I want to do is, is take a little bit of, of extra time maybe in these particular gifts and talk through them because I think there's probably a lot of confusion out there on what these things are. And normally, we, when you hear this passage explained, it's sort of... We kind of run over them quickly. So I want to take a little bit of time, you know, the front half of this message and really unpack, uh, time permitting, some of these, some of these gifts. So the answer to this question is Paul's given gifted, or God has given gifted leaders to the church. Gifted leaders. And first, Paul lists apostles. He says they've given that uh, he gave the apostles. That's the that's first on the list. So what's it, what is exactly Paul talking about here? I think we need to, to sort of pan out in the New Testament and look at the, the ways that this word apostle is used. Okay, So the best way to think about it is there's a lowercase apostle and a capital A apostle. Okay, like Lowercase apostle, capital A apostle. All the word apostle means is someone who is sent with authority. Okay? Someone who is sent with authority. And there's really two ways that it's, that it's used. In a generic sense, lowercase a, someone that's just sent on behalf of another. So lots of people are called apostles. We don't translate it that way in English, but lots of them are called apostles in the New Testament. They're people that are sent with authority. Barnabas is an apostle. There's other examples that we could, we could show. So that's lowercase a, someone who's sent. But there's a technical sense of this word, capital A apostle, we know about that. And that's referring to the 12 apostles, so minus Judas plus Matthias in Acts chapter 1, 
Matthias replaces Judas, is the 12 plus Paul. Okay, the 12 plus Paul. Paul is, is considered a capital A apostle, even though he says he's one untimely born. He's kind of out of the order. He's in a different phase, but he's still an apostle, capital A sense, an apostle to the Gentiles in particular. So these guys are the official representatives of Christ. That's kind of how you can think about it. They're the official representatives of Christ. And they've witnessed him post-resurrection. And they bear his authority on earth after his ascension. Okay, so you think of them as like, as Jesus' official delegates. Alright? These are the guys that he has set apart as his representatives, formal representatives. And in the first sense of apostle as a sent one, we, see, we still send people out today. So in that sense, you could say it continues. We send people out with authority today on behalf of the church and of Christ. But there are no more capital A apostles today. They had a, a particular function. We're going to see more about that in a second. And I think Paul probably has in mind that first group here. I mean, I'm sorry, that second group, that capital A sense of apostle in this, in this text. But more on this in a minute, all right? Right after apostles then, the next gift described is prophets, okay? Apostles and prophets, so it raises some questions, okay? Don't want to take anything for granted. Who's he talking about? Old Testament prophets? New Testament prophets? What's going on here? Well, he has to be talking about New Covenant, New Testament prophets. Why? Well, because they are a gift as a result of Christ's ascension. Right? Does that make sense? They're a gift as a result of Christ's ascension. And when you look at the data, so what, is this, what does a prophet do? All right? When you look at the data in the New Testament, and I've given footnotes here in my notes. We're not going to cover all that, but I want you to see it. What makes someone a prophet is that they received direct revelation from God for the encouragement or direction of a local congregation. That's what it means to be a prophet and not a teacher. They're closely associated with teachers. They teach based on those revelations that have been given to them. But they're not, they're not just teachers. They, the part of what makes them a prophet and not a teacher, what sets them apart, is the fact that they have received direct revelation from God, either for the church at large or for particular local context. And you've got a lot of examples of that in Acts, uh, particular examples of, of prophecies being given to particular individuals for the sake of the church. In that, in that case, it makes them similar to the apostles in that they're not official representatives of Jesus like the 12 plus Paul, but they have received special revelation for the, for the sake of the church. And as we pan out in the letter of Ephesians, okay, as we pan out, Paul's already given us the data that we need to understand these two gifts, these two, these two things, okay, in the, in the very letter that we're in right now. So he's helped us understand them already. So, Paul views them together as a group as foundational for the church. Okay, so look back in chapter 2, verse 20. Verse 19, we'll pick it up there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the who? Apostles and prophets. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's you and I, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he's using this temple metaphor, and he's saying the cornerstone, the most important stone, is Christ. That's what unifies the whole building. It sets it in place. And then on that found, then, then there's a foundation that's laid in this building, and this foundation is the apostles and prophets, according to him. And again, got to be New Testament, New Testament prophets. It's obviously in continuity with the Old Testament prophets, but it's built, it's a, it's a new foundation of the one new man, the church, Jew and Gentile, unified together. So, they're foundational, but in what sense? Okay, How are they foundational? Well, again, Paul anticipates this, and he answers this in chapter 3. They received, this group received direct revelation from God for the founding of the church, the doctrinal foundation of the church. This is what's called in Acts 2, the apostles' doctrine. Acts 2, that the church was, was held to, long, like, was yoked to from its earliest inception, the apostles' doctrine. And the prophets were also included in this. And this, and, and I think what we need to connect here is the fact that the apostles and prophets wrote down these things as New Covenant documents, as the documents of the New Covenant. Just like Old Covenant had documents, New Covenant also has documents, and these apostles and prophets were the particular ones that God had given this revelation to in order to write it down. Paul's already told us that in chapter 3. Look over, look at chapter 3. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, so Paul the Apostle, given to me for you, how the mystery, that's another word for this new revelation about what God's doing in Christ, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. That's this letter. Okay? When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, the revelation that's been given to him, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, i.e., Old Covenant, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see that? This mystery is that the Gentiles, you and I, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then in chapter 4, he tells us that God has given the apostles and prophets to the church. So I think it's safe to infer from the flow of the context, from how a prophet is described in the, in the greater New Testament, that in these, this case, they are foundational. They are gifted to the church in order to, to transmit inspired teaching from Christ to us. Does that make sense? They provided the inspired New Covenant revelation, which was preserved for us in our New Testament documents that we have right here. Paul and the other New Testament authors expected their writings to be received as Scripture. They expected them to be read aloud to the churches. That's what you do with Scripture in a corporate context. You read it aloud. Paul commanded his, his letters to be read aloud. 
He commanded his letters to be circulated, which implies that they would need to be copied. He tells other people to meditate on what he's written and that God will give them understanding as they meditate (laughs) on what he has written. He expects these things to be preached in the local church and applied to the specific context, even to churches that he didn't specifically write them to. That's incredible, okay? So I just want you to see that although we would argue that this foundational role is over, okay, our canon of Scripture is closed, it's over, so i.e. there's no more role of the apostles and prophets today, we would argue that this foundational role is over. You lay it once. However, the apostles and prophets are still being, are still fundamentally edifying the church, so to speak, as we proclaim and teach and shepherd by their writings, which again come from Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's not as though like we just chop those guys off and they're no longer useful to us because their gifts have stopped. Quite the contrary, we're still being edified, nourished on their writings, which come from the Spirit which Christ gave to them to reveal these things to us. So, that's, I think, the function of the apostles and prophets here. Now, just a side note, a lot of people today are claiming to be prophets, to speak on behalf of God to the local church. And without getting into the whole continuationism, cessationism debate, which we are cessationists here, thinking, meaning that those gifts have ceased, Without getting into all that, one word of caution here to this, some biblical implications for people who are claiming to speak a revelation from God to the church. Think if they make a prediction or a prophecy or they say something to you, however benign, oh, that that baby in your womb is going to have blue eyes and red hair and it comes out brown eyes and black hair. That puts them in the category of a false prophet. False prophet. They have claimed to speak an authoritative word from God, and they were wrong. In the Old Testament, just a sober warning, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 20 through 22, Moses talks about this thing and says, if a prophet comes to you and they make a prediction and it's wrong, they are to be regarded as a false prophet and killed. Okay? Now, I'm I'm not advocating that we kill people. Because there's a lot of arguments for that. But I think the parallel is church discipline in the New Covenant. So we need to think carefully about people who are making predictions and are wrong and are claiming to have the gift of prophecy in the church today. We've got to think carefully about that. And at a minimum, we should pursue these folks, calling them to repent of their presumption and enacting church discipline if they're unwilling to acknowledge this. Does that make sense? I just want to lay that out there. Because I know a lot of you at Liberty are going to be intersecting with people that believe these things and are claiming these things. You know. So we just got to warn those people. Okay? God's got to give them the grace to see it, repent, and turn. But we have to, we have to speak clearly to these, to these issues. Okay? Again, that's a whole other topic that we could talk about. We've got to move forward. There's another gifted person on the list, and that's the evangelist. Okay? The evangelist. So what is this person's role? Well, what makes it a little more complicated is there's not a lot of data in the New Testament on this particular gift. 
the most we have is Philip is described as an evangelist in Acts 21.8. Philip is described as an evangelist in Acts 21.8. Which again, doesn't tell us much. If you go back in Acts 8, where what Philip did is described, Acts chapter 8, his evangelistic activities are kind of described for us there. He plants a church in Samaria in Acts 8, 4 through 24. And then he also, like Luke zooms in for us in, on an encounter with him in, the, in an Ethiopian eunuch, where he's describing the implications of Isaiah 53 and preaching Jesus to this guy on a chariot. Well, after that eunuch believes he's baptized, Philip kept on preaching the gospel, it says, to town after town until he got to Caesarea. So then I think you put all that together, you see he's called an evangelist in Acts 8 or Acts 21. You can see that an evangelist is consumed with the evangel, which is the gospel. Evangelist is like a gospelist. Um, so he's consumed with the gospel, and it looks like church planting. I think that's the... the um, immediate outworking of this evangelism. Timothy, in Second Timothy 4-5, Paul's protege, he's encouraged to do the work of an evangelist. Same term. Do the work of an evangelist. And I think sometimes we think of Tim- Timothy as like this solo pastor, but that's not exactly what he was. He was more of like an extension of Paul's ministry. So he would go around to different places. So Paul would say, hey, I want you to come to me. You read the end of Paul's letters to Timothy. He's like, I need you to come to me so you can go to this place. So he's not like some permanent pastor. He would stay in places for a long time, like Ephesus. He stayed in Ephesus for a long time to help establish them and and set them up. But he was constantly doing things for Paul. So Paul's telling him not to forget, in the midst of some of these stays, that he's continued to do this work of an evangelist. That is, I think, church planter. Being consumed with the evangel, going out, and, and increasing this, increasing the, the, the churches in, in his day as an extension of Paul's ministry. Paul's never called an evangelist, but he obviously did the work of an evangelist, um, and he called Timothy to follow in his footsteps in that work. So again, just more data. There's a related verb in the New Testament. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I want you to, I want you to have objective data on this stuff. There's a related verb, and it's typically translated in our text as preaching the gospel. We could call it evangelizing. We could use that verb, evangelizing. But I think sometimes we think of that really tr- in a really trite way, like I just give him the Romans road and then stop, like I evangelized him or whatever. But I think what you see in the New Testament is this preaching of the gospel is, can be very extensive. You know, it can be over a multi-week period where you're interacting with a group of people and they're asking questions. You're going to the text. You're going to the Old Testament. You're Showing implications from those kinds of things. So evangelism, I think we've got to expand that a bit. And, and to evangelize is to, is to explain the gospel and its implications for unbelievers and, in some contexts, believers. They need clarity. They need evangelization in the sense of not to come to Jesus, but to understand the further implications of the gospel. Paul preaches the gospel to churches um, in some of these, in some of these um, uses of this verb. So an evangelist, my point, is that they're consumed with the gospel they're gifted with the gospel, and they can explain it and, and work out its implications very clearly in new settings that don't have the gospel. So think modern missionary church planter who goes into a context with the goal of seeing people come to Christ, gathering a local assembly. And the, the end work of this, the work of an evangelist, is not done. 
according to Paul, until elders are established in a particular church. Okay? The work of an evangelist is not done until a church is planted and elders are established in that church. And that is the New Testament pattern. Okay? So again, just informing the way we think about this. And you're going to see a living, breathing example of this next week in uh, our brother Matt Johnson as he comes in and shares. So finally, last group on this list are the pastors and teachers. And the grammar of the text, you just kind of have to take my word for it because it's not evident in English, but the grammar of this text indicates that these two groups of people are viewed together. These two groups of people are viewed together. But they're not identical. This first word is pastors or shepherds. So a little background on this is our word pastor is Latin. Okay, it's Latin. And all it is is a translation of shepherd in Latin. Okay, so it just means shepherd. Paul here is literally saying that the Lord has provided shepherds for the congregation. This shepherding work is closely associated with the role of an overseer and elder. Shepherds lead the sheep by modeling the Christian life. They feed the sheep by teaching and instructing with the apostles' doctrine. They protect the sheep from false teachers and others who would do them spiritual harm. This is the shepherding work that Paul envisions here. People who are, excuse me, are gifted in shepherding. So it's full-orbed. It obviously includes teaching and includes all these other things, but it's, it's a full-orbed care for the sheep. And then closely related, maybe like a sliver of, of that, the work of a, of a shepherd is, is holistic, and then the work of a teacher is more specific, in that these are people who, who um, are mature, without maybe all the shepherding responsibility of the shepherds, but they're extremely useful, and they're, they're gifted to impart truth to other people in the local body context. It's not an office in the church, but it's, it's a gift that God gives. It's a kind of gift that God gives to, to people in the church used to impart sound doctrine and, and the practical implications of that doctrine in our lives. It's how we, should, how we should live in light of it. And they're closely related to the shepherds because they're in the local assembly context. Like they're the homebodies, if you will. And the, think of the evangelists as those who are, who are, they stay around for a while, but then they go out eventually to try to replicate um, the church. So that's sort of the, the layout, I think, of these gifts. Now, Paul's purpose in this is not to get into like a hierarchy of the offices in the church. The only offices in the church are, are elder and deacon. Or elder, that word is elder, overseer. Sometimes we call them pastors. Elder, overseer, pastor. That's all one group. And then deacon is the other office, quote unquote, in the church. So his, his purpose here is not to get into this hierarchy. But he's highlighting these giftings for one reason. There's something that connects them all. What is it? building up of the church through the truth, through the proclamation of the truth. Truth connects all of these giftings. They're centered on the truth, speaking the truth to the congregation in various ways. So, God uses his truth in our lives to awaken faith and conversion. He uses truth to dispel the lies. He uses truth to energize our faith. He uses the truth to cause us to grow in Christ. So Paul's highlighting God's provision for the church, particularly those who share in the truth, those who share the truth with other other believers, okay, or unbelievers, even at that, to create the church. 
So how do they help us? Okay, second question. How do they help us? Oh, man. Next question. How do they help us? We've got to move quickly through these things. So I spent way more than half the message on those gifts. Their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what he says in verse 12. Look with me here. To equip the saints, God gave them, Christ gave them to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So why did he give them? Well, the purpose of, of, of the, the gifts, and in particular in our context, this my role, Pastor Brian's role, the other teachers of TBC, our purpose is to make sure to the best of our ability that you are equipped and prepared for ministry. This equipping word in the, in the Greco-Roman world was used for the setting of a bone, which I find is kind of interesting, given our opening illustration last week of the broken femur. <laughs> that was unplanned, by the way. I did not know that. Um, but specifically, these leaders are given to help equip you to be useful in the body. Paul says, for the work of ministry. That's the, that's the end goal of this, is, or the, the outworking of this equipping, is so that you can do the work of the ministry. We equip you so that you're useful and able to do meaningful, rewarding, and glorious work. Our job is to get you on the men, so to speak, so that you can be an effective servant in the body. Now, this is extremely delicate because we're also in various ways on the mend. <laughs> we haven't arrived. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic that the Lord is, that is, is woven into this and we need you, just like you need us. But in particular, God's given us giftings with truth to be able to, to work hard publicly as we teach and also privately as we counsel and we disciple. We're given by Christ to spend and be spent for your souls. That is why we're here. So I talked to a lot of guys, side note, about pastoral ministry, you know, just in general, and Lots of times when we're going into ministry, we're kind of we're thinking we maybe have all these motivations to go into ministry. But this is your job description. If you aspire to this role, you must know that it's in order to equip the saints. You are given by Christ to spend and be spent for the sake of his bride. It's not about you. It's about Christ's glory in the church. It's about his precious bride being mended and made useful. And it's a tremendous and glorious, merciful ministry. I mean, it's, it's a thrill to my soul to be able to be involved in something like this and used by the Lord. And I pray all the time that God would, would raise up people from this very group that would be trained for ministry and be sent out from us. I pray that. Um, but I want to warn you, especially you younger guys, that it's not about you. It's about Christ's glory and about the good of the body. So we've got to keep that at the forefront as we think about as we think about ministry. All right. So as you're equipped to minister by the leaders of the congregation, Paul says this results in the edification of the church. He says to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. You see that last phrase in verse 12? So in other words, it's just like his summary of like as you serve, you build up the body. The body is going to grow. It's going to be built up by the fact that you've been equipped to minister. So it's, it's all one big, long chain. Uh, pastors are equipping, church is ministering, then the church is built up. He's going to come back to this idea at the end of the passage. 
I know I'm throwing a lot at you guys, but you can handle it. All right. Number three, or next question: What are the what are the, what's the end goal, or what? How did I put it on here? What are the goals of this equipping? If you want just a summary, the goal of this equipping is full maturity. Full maturity. And Paul is very, 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 very passionate about this. He's so passionate that he says this in one, two, three, four, five ways um, in these verses. We'll hit them all just real quick. He says that the church should be unified or unity. Is, is one of the end goals. They're all complementary goals, by the way. They're kind of, there's a lot of overlap, and, but the, the summary is, is full maturity. So, unity. Look in verse 13. So, they're, they're given to equip until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So, unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So, unity is the main idea here. A unified church is the mark of a healthy church. And Paul says we're to be unified in the faith. That's doctrinal unity. So we're equipping to that end. He also says we're to be unified in the knowledge of Christ. So we're all supposed to really know the Lord Jesus. We're all supposed to really trust Him. We're all supposed to really walk with Him and have a living relationship with the living Christ. And it's the pastors, the pastors and teachers are supposed to help equip you in that. It's our role. So, and that's, that unifies us. So it's like the tuning fork, right? Where you hit the tuning fork and we're all tuning to the same fork, which is Christ. So we're all growing in unity together. And this unity spills out. And the next thing he says is as maturity here. To mature manhood. So right here in the middle of this verse, to mature manhood. That's the next, the next goal. Our unity should be such that we all corporately think and act as one mature person. One mature adult. And what's fascinating about this is the corporate nature of the maturity. He's not saying each one of you should be a mature adult, even though that's true. He's saying, if we put it in our context, Timberlake should function as one mature person. Corporate maturity, in other words. And the leaders are, are given to help get us here. They provide the truth that will nourish us to, to get us to this maturity. And this is a corporate thing as we're, as we're growing up into this. All right. Third issue here is he says, third goal is his Christ-likeness. Okay? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 13. Last phrase. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means Christ-likeness. We should Look like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Act like Jesus. And this is really the, the, the goal. All these goals are kind of cascading here, swelling up, if you will, like a tidal wave into this, this, this Christ-likeness goal. And it sort of spills out right here. It crashes down on us here that we would look fully like Christ in the world, resembling Jesus, laying our lives down for each other out of love, um, Serving each other like he served us. I mean, just think of all those ways. Just transfer how Jesus has served and loved and done all these things for you to how we're to act in the body. That's the goal of the equipping. He keeps going. You know, it's like, okay, Paul, we, we kind of get it. But he says we're not supposed to be like deceivable toddlers. That's one of the goals of this is that we grow out of this toddlerhood. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, it's kind of humbling. He calls us toddlers. Yeah. Kind of initially here. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So it's a goal that we're no longer this way. We're no longer infants. No longer toddlers. Those of you who don't have kids, when you do, you will realize how at risk toddlers are. I mean, it is crazy. If they can die, they will try to die. And it's our job as parents to protect them from that death. Um, Whether it's stairs or coins in their mouths or whatever it is. They're incredibly at risk. Okay, And that's Paul's point here. We are at risk when we are immature. When you don't know the truth, you are at risk. When you have not been equipped, you are at risk. When you are outside of a local church with faithful leaders, you are at risk. Because these leaders have been given to you so that you will grow up out of infanthood into stability. We're at risk when we're immature. We're prone to deception by the lies that we are susceptible to. That's what he's getting at here in this passage. Lies from false teachers. Lies from our immature fleshly hearts. We desperately need the truth and we need it consistently. We need an example of what it looks like to live our lives rooted in the truth. We need to learn to believe and practice the truth. And this is the only safeguard from danger, according to the Apostle Paul. We are far more at risk than we realize. We overestimate ourselves far more than we ought. We need the truth, and we need to be characterized by the truth to grow up. And that's exactly where Paul goes next in this last goal. He says that we're to be truthfully developing, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So, the last goal of our equipping is that we grow. And how does this growth happen? He says, by speaking the truth in love toward one another, by being characterized by the truth. That happens through this equipping. So, we're, we're progressively characterized by the truth. As the pastors equip us, we become truth-saturated. Our lives will progressively transform, and then you will be truthful. The end goal is that you are characterized by the truth and that you're motivated by love. The truth in love. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And this is the means as we're truthful with one another. This is as as we're like an echo chamber of the truth, you know. And it's just like lies can't get in here because we are characterized by the truth of the apostles' doctrine. And we love deeply. As a result of it. So that's the, that's the goal. That we truthfully develop into, into Christ's image. And where he goes last. Our last statement really in this text. I'm just going to read it. Is he says that Christ uses us to grow his church to maturity. As this happens. As we mature and minister. As we use our gifts. As we're growing up into Christ. Christ actually begins to use us powerfully. For the growth of the body. And that's what he says in verse 16. He says, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, main verb, makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in love. If you were to strip away all the component parts of this sentence, because they're all important, but if you were to pull them all away, and you were just to look at the subject and the verb, okay, just subject and verb of this sentence, it would read like this. The whole body makes the body grow. The whole body, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. See the chain? You've been gifted with a gift. What if I don't know how to use that? Oh, he's giving you leaders to help you grow, mature, model, to equip you, to then use your gifts and serve in the body so that the body grows and builds itself up in love. You say, well, what about evangelism? What about, what about multiplying? Well, that's in here. That's what it means to make the body grow. Because as we demonstrate the transformed lives as a result of the gospel, we are offering a transforming gospel to unbelievers who have no hope of transformation. You see that? So it's compelling. I mean, imagine trying to evangelize before you've actually been transformed by the gospel. Right? You're saying, oh, this, this gospel is the transforming power of God, the salvation. But I'm still enslaved to all kinds of sin. So it's not working for you, apparently. So we need to, to let this thing settle in on us. And as we grow, not that we be, be perfect, but as we're growing, our lives are compelling evidence of the transforming power of the gospel. And our evangelism will be enhanced. It will increase. You will have the discernment to be able to address the lies in unbelievers' lives. I mean, it's all one big package deal here. <laughs> the Lord knows what he's doing in how he's, he's equipped the church. So, as we bring it down, I'm already over time, but avail yourself of the public teaching ministry of this church. That's a basic implication. The pastors and teachers are preaching the inspired writings of the apostles and prophets. We're explaining them and trying to show you the implications of them for your souls. So come. Prioritize Sundays in your schedule. Come to Boundless. Come to the main service. Come to the evening service. You cannot oversaturate yourself with the truth. You can't do it. It's impossible. Next, avail yourself of the private discipleship and counseling ministry of this church. If you're not sure how to be useful in the body, please come speak with us. If you're burdened by a particular sin pattern, please come talk to us. We're going to try our best to help you, to connect you with somebody who can help you. If you don't have a regular discipleship relationship, we want to try to make that happen. And this is all the private, particularized equipping ministry. And that's God's intention for the church. Right here from this passage. And then last, seek to grow in little ways in becoming more like Christ. So in whatever area you're currently serving, ask yourself, how could I think and act more like Jesus in this area? How could I better showcase him in my life as I serve? And once you've got some initial ideas to maybe how you could take it to the next step, many of you serve, but just how do you take it to the next step? Start implementing those things to stretch you, to maybe lay your life down in an area that's harder for you to do. And as you do that, watch how the Lord makes this very church a more healthy place as a result of your service. All right? Lots of unanswered questions, I'm sure, but we've got a whole regroup lunch to talk about. So as we're volleying, Maybe we can be, you know, discussing these things as well. So, let's pray.
Father, thank you for the absolute clarity of your word. Thank you for your infinite wisdom and how you've designed this church and churches all over the world to grow. And we pray that that as we're connected to the head, to Christ, that Christ would energize this entire enterprise and that we would grow up here at Timberlake and in particular in Boundless and would radiate your glory and your image to the world around us, to Liberty University, to any other job areas that we're involved in, and that you would build your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name.